welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We come in the Word of God. You know, if you're new or visiting, we study the Bible verse by verse. Take a book and kind of open it up and teach the whole truths of it. And we just kind of walk through it as it was written. And we've been going through Colossians. It's been a wonderful study of the greatness of Christ. And we now come to Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, which have instruction about how to live in God's design in our marriages as husbands and wives. So again, let us hear the word of God together. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. (laughs) That was a brother rebuking himself. That's good. I like it. I'm going to need that support a lot in this message because... I'll be stepping on every toe you have. (laughs) But isn't that the beauty of God's word? God alone can speak with loving authority into our walk. This is God's perfect word. May it reveal to our hearts both conviction and comfort as we learn more about how to walk in his ways. Amen. You can be seated. You know, it's another shift in the book. Like, like I said, when you start in the beginning and give the whole process of the book, you, you see the process of the writer's thoughts. And beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul talked about the fact that we've been given a new life in Christ and new power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that new life principle should result in new living. And so he's talked about that new life in many different ways for the first 17 verses. And he now moves from the principle into the practice. People say, uh, preach practical sermons. Well, I preach as the Bible opens itself, and now we're going to get to something intensely practical. But the practice is always preceded by the new life principle of who God is in your life. So the principle's been laid, the first 17 verses. Now we get to the practice, and he has one guiding idea in how we're to live our lives. We finished with it last time. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he concludes his talk about new life with that verse. And then it's also a launching pad into the next verses. It's a principle of how a person who is indwelt by Christ is to live. Everything we do in word or deed should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. We discovered last time that doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus means doing it as though he were here with you. And you're doing things and saying things and believing things that only he would if he were here. So it's all for his glory. So he gives us that guiding principle, if you will, in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he starts to give you examples. I want you to live for the glory of God. For example, in your marriages as husbands and wives. 
After that, in verse 20, we're going to look at another example, how the children should obey their parents and, and by implication, how parents are to work and, uh, and uh, raise their children, particularly dads not provoking children. Verse 21 and on and on we go. Then verse 22 gets us into, uh, in, in a sense, the life in the workplace and how to deal in, in that domain. And uh, finally, it gets into the public square as we go a little farther into chapter 4, where he talks about walking in wisdom toward outsiders and always being gracious about the Lord Jesus. So that's kind of the pathway. Now we start today with his words about husbands and wives. And uh, sometimes when, when preaching comes to a text like this, sometimes uh, folks grimace. Uh, they, uh, they feel that something's coming where they're going to feel come down on or the standards of the Bible are tougher than they want or a lot of times we just know we're not living into it like we should. And, uh, and that's an understandable reaction, but I want you to relax a little bit. Um, you know, uh, we all know that our marriage relationships, those of us who are married, can and could be better. And that's the mindset to have. It's a long process. I forget who said it, but he, he said, the family is the grad school of life. I thought that's really true. That's when everything you thought you knew or you learned in a textbook or even the things that you really believe from the Bible have to get enacted in the real pressure of real relationships and your real weaknesses and those of your spouse and your kids. It's a shame today that a lot of people that are younger are opting out of Grad school. They're opting out of being involved in that miracle that God designed, which is the family, opting out of marriage, opting out in some cases of ever being parents. And yet God designed that whole environment to uh, be a place in which his glory is seen and our growth is maximized. For most of us, God does have marriage as a plan and the family as a place. But you got to admit that... Um, the family reveals your weaknesses, and uh, sometimes uh, the littlest witnesses notice. Kids. And you know, kids, there's no filter, yeah, right? Nor should there be, for crying out loud. And there was a story I read this week of a little seven-year-old girl, and she had just seen the movie Cinderella. And uh, she was testing her neighbor lady's knowledge of the whole story. And the neighbor lady, who was kind of anxious to impress the little girl, interrupted her and he said, oh, oh, I know what happens at the end. What, said the girl. And the neighbor lady said, Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after. The little girl crossed her arms and said, I don't know they didn't, they got married. <laughs> oh, I'm just hoping mom never, was, never heard that story. But anyway, I mean, yeah, that's it, isn't it? There's a design, but there's a challenge in that grad school of life. So we're going to talk about that today. You know, and, and some, some people say, you know, my marriage is different than I, what I think the other Christians around me are. Um, they look like their marriage just kind of works and glides easily, you know. And, well, our marriage doesn't work easily. Well, well my friend, nobody's marriage works easily. A little freeing clue, Okay. It's growth for all of us. It's growth in selflessness and wisdom and love. So this is how to grow a little bit. God didn't uh, give us the grad school without a design. He, uh, he wants to talk about two roles. 
and two ways in which wives and husbands are to walk. Wives are to walk in the role, the biblical role of submission. And I'll explain that. And husbands are to walk in the biblical role of protective love, providing love. And in our culture already, there is a spring-loaded reaction against those two, particularly the idea of a wife submitting to her husband's leadership. And um, we're all creatures of our culture, and so there might be a little stepping on the, ga- on the brake pedal right now for you saying, I'm, 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 I'm probably going to find some stuff I'm not going to like here. But, but don't let the negative crowd into your mind because all of God's designs are good because God is good, isn't he? Amen. Eric Raymond's a pastor and blogger that I read a lot. He blogs on the Gospel Coalition and he put that in perspective. He said, when we think about God's word, we have to remember that it reflects his character. Therefore, the word of God is good because God is good. Yeah? And God would never command his people to do anything that would harm them. That's a logical conclusion, isn't it? Instead, he would prescribe what is best for us. He loves us and wants what would lead to his glory and our flourishing. But not only is this concept of the roles in marriage not negative, it's also positive. It's good. Remember, God does not command his people to do anything that would do them harm or make them less human. He is all wise and commands what is best for our good. When he made the first husband and wife, he pronounced them what? He said, good. And therefore, the design and the, the, the framework of marriage, good. That husbands are given a leadership role within the context of the family, and wives are given a, role, given a role of loving response, does not in any way mean that women are somehow inferior to men. For example, God's created design is good. It's positive. So I want you to have that in mind as we walk through these two verses today. So that's kind of the picture frame, okay? I'm going to do two things. I'm going to take a closer look, first of all, at, the, at a wife's willing submission, and then second, a closer look at a husband's sacrificial love. I entitled these, these points Closer Look because we hardly look at them at all as a society, and we don't look at them enough as Christians. And yet Paul brings it out here. Interesting, isn't it? When he says, do all things for the glory of God, he didn't start with your job. Wow, interesting. Didn't start with your giving and your tithing and your financial life which so many people can get dialed in, but the relational world they're in, oh, is not dialed in. He started with the most challenging interpersonal relationship of wife and husband. So we're going to take a closer look. Here, first of all, is a closer look at a wife's willing submission. Now, i got to remind you, as we talk about both of these roles, willing submission, but also loving and protective love by by a husband, I want to remind you that This is now and was at the time of this writing when Paul wrote this totally counter to the fallen culture. Totally. It was was counter in Paul's time. In fact, this may blow your mind, we have language in English. We have a word wife and a word husband. The the Greek, Greco-Roman society and the Greek that Paul wrote in and the Greek that these people lived in and spoke, it was such an individualistic society And it was so um, into self and into self-fulfillment. Did you know this? There is actually no Greek word in Koine Greek for husband or wife. There's simply the word man or woman. So you look at this text and he's basically saying, women, submit to your men. Now that's kind of crazy. But the context tells us that he's talking about that design of Christian marriage. 
But think about a society that's so uninterested in marriage, so uninterested in giving yourself to another person that they won't even coin a word for wife or husband. And back then, it was, it was a dark time. William Barclay's a Bible commentator, and he, he really does a lot of great research on culture. I like him for that. And he wrote this about what women's lives were like in the ancient world. He said, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as his house or the, his flocks or his material goods were. Can you imagine that mentality? She had no legal rights whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. Not that divorce is a good thing, but the imbalance of rights reflects something, doesn't it? In Greek society, the, the, the society kind of put the blocks in place for Greco-Roman life, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even go, to go to the store. For her, there was demanded a complete servitude in the house, and she had to be faithful to her husband. But her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many sexual relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no condemnation from the culture and no word from her. So both under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all the duties and the lack of protection to the wife. That was the culture then. That's, that's how broken it was. And today in our society, we may have words for husband and wife and family marriage, but we're busy deconstructing them all, aren't we? We're busy rejecting them all. We're busy redesigning everything that God designed about men and women and marriage and relationships and family and parenting into a moving mess. We're a society that's totally addicted, just like the Romans were, to the independence and satisfaction of the self. What's the greatest thing in our world? Getting whatever you want. And we'll arrange things for you to get it. So in a society totally addicted to the independence and satisfaction of the self, here's a little advice. Don't go looking to this society for marital advice or affirmation. If you do, you're going to find out the answer to the question, how's that working for you? Oh, interesting about Dr. Phil, who's made that saying popular. Did you know he's been married twice? <laughs> First marriage to Debbie Higgins McCall. He married her in 1970 high school sweetheart of sorts. According to her, he was domineering and would not allow her to participate in her family's business, a health spa. He had multiple affairs with other women. When she confronted him, she said, when I confronted him about his infidelities, he didn't deny these girls and told me that it had nothing to do with his feelings toward me to grow up. That's the way it was in the world. <laughs> wow. She left shortly after that. And he began dating a 20-year-old college student who's now his current wife. So that's so when we even talk about the select voices in our society, understand the fallen world cannot give you a design for marriage and family. We don't go there. So where do we go? We go to the Word of God, even when its design is not what our culture gives us an instinct to respond to. I'm asking you to keep an open mind, because even the best thinkers in a lost world cannot have the relationship that God wants. It's right here in His beautiful Word. So there's three things under this idea as we look at this question of submission, which so many people just listening to that word would reject it out of hand. Well, let me explain it a little bit. 
I'm speaking as a Bible teacher, not a marriage expert. But this is what the text tells us. First of all, it, it defines submission. What's submission? Here, I'll just put it into a phrase. Is my best understanding of it from studying this passage. It's a willing response to a husband's loving leadership in a home. It's a willing response on the heart of a wife to a husband's loving leadership in the home. Now, um, the, the word there, submit, means submit. I could run to a bunch of other Bible translations like some pastors do to find a word that fits my audience better <laughs> or loosens the weight of the word. No. In fact, I'll go to the Greek. The Greek was hupotasso. It came from hupo, which, which meant under, and tasso, which meant to get in line or arrange in an orderly manner. It literally meant to, to line up under someone's leadership. It was a common military term in secular Greek. How about that? Now you're saying, wow, okay, I'm shutting down. <laughs> Husband's a despot, a general? No, that was one usage. In the world of general relationships, hupotasso described a voluntary attitude of cooperating with another person. So let's take the harshness and let's take the autocracy out of this. It is a willing response to a husband's loving leadership in a home. John Piper, a well-respected Bible teacher, put all those words into this description. The basic of meaning, meaning of submission here would be recognize and honor the greater responsibility of your husband to supply your protection and sustenance. Be disposed to yield to his authority in Christ and be inclined to follow his leadership. Hmm. Notice the husband has to be providing protective, loving leadership. And notice that environment allows you and calls you to recognize and honor his responsibility to do that, to be disposed to yield to his authority in Christ. Notice he's, he must be in Christ and be inclined to follow his leadership. I, I think that's a pretty good summary. So you look at the word and the phrase when it says, wives, submit to your husbands. That's what it talks about. Now you might say, well, that's optional for, for women that feel they can do that or people that really like that idea about marriage. No, the Bible says that's a command. It's a present uh, middle imperative. Let me talk a little bit about that in a minute. I'll talk about that in just a second. Here's the second thing I want you to understand. Not only is it a willing response to a husband's loving leadership in a home, secondly, it never implies or involves inferiority. Hear me. That's a label that an independent world has put onto the Bible. Submitting to a husband's leadership and his responsibility to protect and lead and provide and guide never implies or involves inferiority on the part of a wife. Never. Tony Evans has spent some time writing about this, and he uh, puts this in some clear words, I think. Let me read from him. He says, I want to clarify right away that this command does not address a woman's intrinsic worth as a person and a child of God. In other words, a wife is equal in value to her husband. Peter said it well in 1 Peter 3, 7, that a wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. 
He said, husbands, love, live with your wives in an understanding way, granting her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. I can't think of a greater description of equality and honor that you both share than that. It's not about inferiority. It's not about superiority or an issue of value. He goes on, a wife's submission has to do with response, not value. And he illustrates, just as Christ is, Jesus Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all equal, right? You better believe that, because that's what the Bible teaches. All perfect, and yet they each submit to, to the directives and, and, and the work of the other in certain ways. Jesus Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father in his cross work and his incarnation, Yet he's always been equal with the father. He says in the same way, so a wife is responsively subordinate to her husband, yet equal to him. And notice he says, it is fitting in the Lord. He says, that phrase tells us that a wife is involved in something that glorifies God, and it's what God asks of her. So I thought those were good words. It never implies or involves inferiority. And in fact, when you look at the Bible, submission is woven throughout the New Testament. It's part of how God has designed both society to operate and the church to operate. If, if you have a problem with submission, woman or man, you're going to have a problem living in God's design for his world, for his society, and for his church. Submission's all over the place. If you're that independent-minded person, well, the, Lord's got, the word, word of God's got to speak to you. I mean, think about it. God has placed everything in submission to Christ, the Scripture tells us, and Christ will retain all of that and receive the worlds unto himself when he returns. Until, him, uh, until then, according to the book of Hebrews, to whom are the angels subordinate? Jesus Christ. So Christ subordinate to the Father in coming to the earth to die on that cross and achieve salvation for us, go through the humiliation of the incarnation and the wonder of his cross work for us. Everything ultimately is going to come back to Christ. Until then, all the angels are subordinate to Christ and they always will be. So Christ to the Father, angels to Christ. And then the church is in submission to the Lord. Ephesians 5, it's very clear. Christians are to submit to God, but also to one another in, in cooperative ministry. 1 Corinthians 16. Children are to submit to who? Their parents. Newsflash from our society. The younger submit, are to submit to the old in certain portions of the scripture and in the pastoral epistles that's talked about. Slaves and servants to their masters, citizens to their government. I could go on and on. In fact, one author said you could conclude that any Christian is a son or daughter of obedience because that's what the Bible says. We're, we all need to walk in submission in certain ways and God designed that. It's part of his plan of providence which, in which he orders a world that battles against its fallenness. So that's important. You can say, I don't believe in submission. I'm going to speak with you honestly. You don't believe in the Bible. Because it talks about all of us, in a sense, living in submission in certain roles in the church, in the society. I think I made my point. Now, there's some caveats. There's some things you've got to remember. There's three. First, I already mentioned, submission does not imply inferiority. It just doesn't. Another verse in the Bible that might help you there is Galatians 3.28. Paul said, we are no longer slave or free, nor male or female, but all one in Christ. Sexuality is not a definition of superiority. Second, submission is not absolute. There may be times when a wife 
must refuse to submit to her husband's leadership or desires or actions because they violate God's word. That's important to know. We're not talking about a blind autocracy. And then thirdly, the husband's authority is not to be exercised in an authoritative or overbearing manner, but in the context of a loving relationship. 1 Peter 3, 7, it's a beautiful verse. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, according to knowledge. It means you make a study of her weaknesses, her strengths, her desires, her needs, the things in life that fulfill her and that don't. And you make it your dedicated mission to live in that understanding and find different ways to love her. Husbands, love, love your wives and live with them in an understanding way according to knowledge. Make a study of them. And then it says, showing them honor since they are joint heirs with you of the gospel. So I think that's important. So submission is a willing response to a husband's loving leadership in a home. Secondly, it never implies or involves inferiority. Here's the third thing. Submission is a voluntary response done for God's glory. Take a look at the text again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Who are you really submitting for? You're submitting for the glory of the Lord, to please him. You're responding to your husband's leadership, but you're not really even doing it to please him. You're doing it to please the Lord and his design. That's so important. Interesting, in the Greek language here, it's wives, submit to your husbands, and it's in the middle voice. It's a command, but it's in the middle voice. What that means is it's something that a wife decides to do and does herself. Now that's pretty important because I'm surprised I have to say it, but I guess I would have to say it from some, some backgrounds in marriage. No husband can order his wife to submit to him. Okay. Just sharing that as bluntly as I may. No. It's a response of her heart to the loving, protective leadership of a man as is fitting in the Lord. So she is engaged in it. She is to choose. And as she does, it's fitting in the Lord. It, I mean, ladies, God has honored you and he's asked you to do what he, al- he also has done. And I just told you about the models of submission. Jesus Christ in loving submission to his father where that was fitting in the Lord to go to the cross. And the church is to submit to Christ. It's interesting that ladies in Ephesians 5, which also teaches this principle of submission, as you submit in, in the areas of marriage to your wife's, to your husband's leadership, rather, you, you actually are reflecting something that he wants for the church to do. For the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So as you walk in submission to your husband's leadership, you're reflecting how the church is to walk in submission to Jesus. That's an honor. Philippians 2 amplifies it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. The principle there is voluntary humility for the pleasure of God. So let me summarize it. 
Meaning a submission is not an inferior to a superior. It is of two equals. One chooses for the sake of the divine design to do what God says to do. This individual will make up their own mind. And it's going to have to be a lifestyle because the command is present active. It means continually do this as you live in your marriage, wives. It's not just on occasion when a decision has to be made or when uh, something serious occurs. No, it's to be a mindset in your daily walk. The motivation is the Lord Jesus living in you. You're doing it for him. You're loving him in this. The model is Jesus himself who submitted to the Father's loving leadership and call. He has already modeled it out for us and showed us exactly what to do. So the responsibility of the wife is to submit to her husband in order for the home to have order and for it to function properly. So that's kind of how I would put a lot of that together. I know that's a lot of words, but it is. So... She is to choose, and as she does it, God receives glory. But here's the thing. Let me just tell you a little point of experience that I also think is taught in this text. The more a wife is able to trust her husband, the more she's willing to choose to walk in trust and responsiveness to his love and his leadership. So that brings us to you guys. And I'm speaking in this very specific sense there. Guys, let's talk about you. There are times when I look at how God puts the scriptures together, and I swear that I just, if, if I it had a short conference before the incarnation, I would have just said, you might want to shift around that. I, I look at this, I'm thinking verse 19 should have come before verse 18. It just should have. But no, he has his ways. So let's take a closer look at a husband's sacrificial love. You know, Chrysostom was the greatest preacher in the first century or two of the church. Chrysostom meant golden-tongued. Wouldn't you love to hear that guy in a pulpit? But he also wrote about this text, and he said, when God gives commands, he usually uses a balanced scale. In other words, he doesn't single out individuals or roles he has a will for every role and everybody and so the scales were really tipping there for a while ladies on your dear shoulders weren't they okay just be honest you're just kind of going is he going to get to point three anytime soon well the scales are tipping boys (laughs) let's talk about you and me three things take a look at the text husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Boy, there's a lot here. Again, three things. What does it mean to love your wife? Is it the right gift on a certain holiday? Is it a romantic gesture? Is it physical intimacy? Is it whatever the society currently says love is? No, I'll put it this way. This text says it's a commitment to provide for the needs and desires of your wife in a sacrificial way. It's a commitment. The word word love there is agapao. It meant a decision of the will. To provide for the needs and desires of your wife in a sacrificial way. Let me get into this. As I said, love there is the word agapao. We are related. I have a noun, related noun, agape. How many have heard of that? Oh, you're going to have to get more educated. All right, so the rest of you guys. 
It's the word that was used in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Sacrificial commitment to the unlovable, to the fallen, to the unattractive. So it's a, lo- it's a word that meant unconditional and sacrificial love. Loving your wife in the same way that God loved you in redeeming you. So it doesn't have affection or romantic attachment. Those would be the Greek words phileo or eros. But it does talk about caring love. It talks about a deliberate attitude of mind that concerns itself with the well-being of the person that you want to love. It talks about devotion to another as opposed to satisfaction for yourself. I'll put it this way. In my mind, leadership is a secondary thing to covering love. Direction, decision. I don't think that your men so much commanded to lead, but, you're, but, but to love. And your leadership will be affected by that tender, dedicated heart. Because if you love her and are committed to what is best for her, you will love her wisely in an understanding way. And your leadership will not be fearful because it will have come from the context of a commitment of love. Men were called not so much and commanded to lead, but to love. And that creates that domain. Again, Tony Evans, some some more of his work on this. He just puts it into takeable words. He said, men, this is the self-sacrificing agape love that Christ displayed when he loved and gave himself for the church. Ephesians 5.25, you can find it there apparently. A husband ought to ask himself regularly, what have I given up for my wife lately? What has it cost me to be her husband? What sacrifices have I made to enhance her well-being? Christ loved the church so much he made the ultimate sacrifice for her. That's the model of a husband's love. Many men have the idea, he writes, that being a husband means being the boss. But Christ demonstrated sacrificial servant love. To put it simply, a a husband should be out-serving his wife. One way a husband can test his servanthood is to list all the things his wife does for him and all the things he does for her and see which list is longer. (laughs) Oh, for crying out loud. Well, I suddenly lost the ability to write with my right hand when I read that. It would have been nice, but I... Christ is exalted, he says, when we husbands demonstrate his love in our marriages. I think that is a beautiful way to put it. Second, when a man leads and fulfills verse 19, it provides the atmosphere for your wife's submissive heart to flourish. It provides the atmosphere for your wife's submissive heart to flourish. Believe me, if she's walking with God under the control of the Holy Spirit, God will be wanting his design to be worked out, and she will want to obey, she will want to honor, she will want to follow, she will want unity in your marriage, she will want all of those things. It's it's a desire of her heart to, to walk in this role, and you create the atmosphere through your love and protection so that that can flourish I'll read this to you from how is in the literal Greek. Paul said, you husbands, <laughs> but right at the front of the sentence in the Greek for emphasis, you husbands, keep on loving your wives 
and stop being bitter toward them. Focus on the keep on. Keep on loving your wives. What's your role? You say, I'm not a good leader. I'm a terrible decision maker. I'm not as smart as she is in certain areas. I'm not as uh, educated in the Bible as she is. I've just come to Christ. She's been with Jesus since she was small. She has a Christian family. I've got a wrecked family. I'm not qualified to do this. Oh, you know, are, are you able to love your wife under the control of the Holy Spirit? The answer always has to be yes. Out of that love, lead as a loving Direction, direction from God, but, but you got to keep on doing it. It's the first of the commands in there. It's present active imperative. What's that mean in the Greek? Present means it's continuous. It's to be your habit of life, man. Active means it involves your volitional choice. You decide to do it, and when you fall down in doing it, you decide to get up for the um, umpteenth time and say, I still want to learn to be sensitive and to, to let go of me and to love her more. Maybe you've even come into it late in your Christian life and realizing these are the things from God for you. Don't be discouraged. Just press on. And the imperative, it's a command. It's from God. Again, I hate to bring it up, but somebody might say to me, you know, my wife just needs to be more submissive. I think the flow of this text would lead me to answer, actually, you need to be more loving. (laughs) Why don't you see how that works out for you? (laughs) To borrow, but more correctly use a phrase. Here's the last. It's a commitment to provide for the needs and desires of your wife in a sacrificial way. It provides the atmosphere for your wife's submissive heart to flourish. She has a heart for that. And thirdly, its greatest enemy is a harsh and bitter attitude. Look at what he warns husbands about. Doesn't doesn't have a warning for the wife in verse 18. But he's got a warning for us men. And do not be harsh with them. That's a battle. It's okay, ladies, to say amen. You can say that. (laughs) And it's okay for men to say, you're right. Why is this an issue? I found that, that one of our tendencies as we battle in our flesh is that wives often step up too soon and take control in a home out of fear. And men too often step on their wives out of anger. Why are men so angry? We're angry because God designed us to be leaders and lovers and responders. And when we fail we become deeply threatened. But we're the ones, according to God's design, that often have to take the first hits from the circumstances of life. And a lot of times, men, we let the hurt and the anger and the frustration of the circumstances of our lives stew in us, and it creates a bitterness. And we may look great in the office on a Monday, and friendly in the church on a Sunday, but then we take the safe space of a house on any day and we dump our bitterness and our frustration on our families. We do. It's a tendency, it's a temptation for men more than women. It's got to be because God put it right in there for us men. 
So the greatest enemy of a loving and protective environment you could create for your wife to flourish in is a harsh and bitter attitude. It'll kill it because it breaks your total credibility with your wife. It's a deep battle in my life. It's a deep battle for anyone that's under the strains of circumstances in life. And if you don't watch it, it can get severe. The Greek word here is a very ugly Greek word. Picross. It meant pointed and sharp. Penetrating. In relationship, it meant words that penetrated the senses of another person. In relationships, it was used in Greek to mean having bitter resentment towards someone. We create a blame place for the things we can't control that make us uh, exasperated as men. And no, you need to take that to the Lord, men. You need to take that to the Lord, and you need to take that into another relationship in the body of Christ that will allow you to vent but not not to hurt. But if you've If you've allowed your marriage to be a dumping ground, you're breaking that whole environment. And who could be drawn to trust someone like that? Well, it's sobering to see the sad results of how breaking God's design creates pain. It creates it not only in Christian homes, and believe me, the battle is just as deep in my life, but it creates it in our whole society. When you think about it, breaking this design is where the earth's very first couple, Adam and Eve, went in the wrong direction. I close with this. If you go back to Galatians, Genesis 3, it's the chapter of the fall. A man and a woman placed in a perfect environment, all their needs met, one command only about one thing they were not to do of course take a look and see if you see what I see in Genesis 3 verses 6 and 7 about how the first couple went in the wrong direction by, by, by failing to walk in God's design Genesis 3 verse 6 the tempter is in the garden Satan in the person of a serpent speaks to her and tempts Eve about the apple verse 6 so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You might disagree, but it looks here as though Eve didn't fall by herself. She wasn't alone in the garden when Satan came to tempt her. Apparently, Adam was with her, but he was silent. In that fateful moment, two things happened that could have changed everything and did. She failed to look, first of all, to God and his command, but secondly, to her covering. Wouldn't it have been remarkable if when Satan spoke those words and pointed to that glistening apple, since Adam was with her, she took a step back and she looked to him. But she didn't look. But Adam was also there and 
he stayed silent. What did he fail to do? He failed to lead. She failed to look to him in a moment of deep, deep crisis for his covering, his advice, his partnership. And he failed to provide it. He failed. It, 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 it's as if in that moment, I'm just imagineering here, what would, it, what would things have been like if this temptation moment happens, the glistening apple is pointed to, Satan is coiled and ready, and, and instead of biting it, she stepped back and she looked at Adam and she said, I'm not sure about this. What do you think, honey? And what would it have been like if Adam had replied to her, Eve, back away from him. This is not good. I don't have a good feeling about this. Let's step back and go away. (laughs) Well, we know that that didn't happen. And in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In a sudden moment, because they didn't walk in the design and in the call of God, the next moment they're they're sewing together the wreckage. And we now live in the consequences of that. It's something to think about. But I will end with this happily. We are no longer in the broken family of fallen Adam and Eve if we're Christians. We're in the new family of the risen Christ. And that's why God has said, I'm bringing my design back to you, church. I'm bringing my design back to you, Christian husband and wife. And it means that any Christian couple at any point can start at any time to go in the right direction. Go in the right direction. You say, oh, man. You don't understand my habits, my temperament, my track record. You don't understand where she's coming from. This is impossible. Yeah, it is. That's why in Ephesians 25, which also teaches submission and loving leadership, the whole text there says you can't do it unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I like to put it this way. You can't love your wife in your strength. God never said you could, but you can love her through Christ, and he always said he would love her through you. And there's a great hope in that. May the truth of God's word, in tenderness or conviction, be over our walks before him today.